One of my favorite stories is told of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And they were out on a camping trip, and after a good meal, they lay down for the night and they went to sleep. And several hours had passed, and Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, I've got a question for you. When you look up into the sky, I want you to tell me what you see. And Watson replied, well, sir, I see millions and millions of stars. He goes, well, Watson, what does that tell you? And he thought for a moment, and he said, well, sir, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. He said, Holmes, what does it tell you? He said, Watson, you know, when I look up and see all those stars, it tells me someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> you know, there's, there's just times in our life that it's so easy to miss the obvious. And, and I believe that that's really the, the message that Luke has been conveying to his readers, you know, with, our, with regards to the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth throughout his eyewitness account. And thus far in Luke's gospel, he has shown a progressive and intensifying revelation of who Jesus is. If you recall from his birth announcement on that cold winter's night, the trembling hands of a carpenter, wet with blood of birth, held his steaming sun in the starlight. And we read these words, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord has shone around them. And they were terrified." The glory of the Lord that had been long absent from the presence of Israel, as Ichabod said, the glory has departed, had returned in the person of Jesus Christ and was reflected in the panoramic view that took place in the announcing angels. As the shepherds cowered under their daz- this dazzling radiance, a vast company of magnificent angels in festal array outshone the winter constellation, and they were told they were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. God's glory had returned. John would later write, it's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. There were flashes of His glory at His advent, but for almost 30 years, the glory was absent. It was veiled. And even after He began His public ministry, there was no manifestation of what's called the Shekinah glory of God. But as his ministry progressed, we see in Luke's 8, chapter 8 and chapter 9, there was a successive revelation of who he is. We saw that he's the Lord of nature as he calmed the storm. That he's Lord of the supernatural as he cast out demons and they obeyed his voice. We saw that he was the Lord of life as he was healing those who had affliction and even raising the dead. We've learned that he's the Lord of creation where he is feeding up to maybe 20,000 people at one time as he continued to hand out fish and loaves to meet their needs. And then finally, we see that he's the Christ of God. The Messiah of God, as, as Peter in our last message announced with his great confession. Who do people say that I am? They had a multitude of answers. And he said, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. You're the one that God has promised. The one that we've been waiting for.
And you know, as Jesus said in Matthew's account, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He went on and said, But you don't understand, because the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem, and he must suffer under the hands of the elders and the priests. And I'll be crucified, and three days later I'll rise again. And they didn't understand what was going on as far as the suffering and the cross and the resurrection. And the question that comes to mind is, how would Jesus encourage and strengthen them for the difficult road that lay ahead? And if you've got your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 28, where we see the glory of the Lord displayed, answering once again with crystal clarity the question, who is Jesus? In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, We read these words, and some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. We're told in Matthew and Mark's account that it was for six days. In Luke's account, we're told eight. These are the so-called contradictions that people find in the Bible. And yet at the same time, there's an explanation because in Matthew and Mark's account, if they were counting the six days in between this period of time, the eight days would refer to the day that Jesus was teaching them regarding his suffering and his teaching, the six days in between, and now the eighth day was the event that takes place. Oftentimes, the apparent contradictions of Scripture are very easily answered by such things as they would be looking at the intervening period of time, those six days in between, versus those on each end. So we've got one, two accounts saying it was six days. Another, we see that there's eight. And we recognize it's a period of time that took place in between the time that Jesus had taught about his impending suffering, that he would go into Jerusalem, that he would be crucified, that he would die, that he would raise again. And also his teaching to them that not only would he suffer, but they would suffer as well. And that all of God's people will suffer. That we're to pick up our cross daily and deny ourselves and follow him. And that the road to eternity, the road to glory, is a road that's paved with suffering and heartache and hardship. And they were troubled by that because as, all, as they, as us, none of us like the road of trouble. None of us like the road of heartache or hardship. None of us, as I said many times, would sign up for it out at the tables. Uh, and yet at the same time, we recognize that when Jesus said you were to pick up our cross daily and follow him, that there was a path that was taken, and that path would be one of, of suffering and sorrow and even death. That that's the road, the Christian road to eternity. 
that's the road that God has paved for us. And that's just the way that it is. And they were troubled by that, as we are all troubled by it. Nobody likes that particular path. And as we look at this, they were having a hard time understanding because their hope was that Jesus had come to establish God's kingdom here on earth and that all of their suffering had come to an end and that he would abolish all of those and destroy those enemies of theirs who were making life so miserable. And that's what their hope was, that God's kingdom was established then. And he said, no, you don't know what you're talking about because you are going to have to suffer. And you will suffer. And they were troubled by that, and they didn't like to hear that. There are many people today who distort the truth of Scripture and want to tell people that, you know what, it's not God's will that God's people suffer. And I'm so troubled by that because it's heresy from the pit of hell that confuses people because the Word of God is so clear in that area that the the cross is a death sentence. If any man wants to follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. You know, perhaps you've been in a similar place, not quite certain what God is doing. You've been praying, you've been seeking His wisdom and searching for answers in His Word. And yet God's ways are still seemingly elusive to you. You know, this passage gives us an answer, a glimpse of who God is at such moments in our lives. Luke connects the prior teaching and the time between to the great display of God's glory that we see in this passage. And eight days after, we're told, and some eight days after these sayings, again, what were the sayings? The sayings were that he would suffer and die, that he would be raised from the dead, and that how they would also suffer and die for following him. But they weren't to despair, and neither should we. He says, for I will return in glory. And some of you, even here, will catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God before you. And in this passage, we have a continuation of thought. And in it, we'll examine three truths. First of all, we notice that Jesus displayed his glory in verses 28 through 29. We read again, and some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James... And went up to the mountain to pray. He took with them the inner three, as they're called often in Scripture. Peter, who had just made this great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And James and John, who we recognize as the sons of thunder. And some of us, they're our patron saints, so to speak. You know, they're the ones, anytime there was a hardship that came up or anybody gave anybody a difficult time, they turned to the Lord and said, Hey, Lord, how about if we call fire from heaven and destroy them? And, uh, you know, some of us go, I like those guys. I can relate to those guys. And they're part of this inner three. And, and Jesus took them up to the mountain with him. And it would be reminiscent of the number, the same number that went with Moses, his three companions, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, who saw the glory of God in Exodus 24. And you'll find that there are so many connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament as Jesus fulfilled many of the things that God had said would take place. And, and, you know, and immediately they would begin to tie this current event to God's past dealings with Israel and his past revelation of his glory. And so from Luke, Mark, and Matthew, we get a detailed account of what had taken place. Notice in verse 29, And while he was praying... The appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. We're told his facial appearance became different. His countenance, we would say, became different. If you recall from the study of the book of Daniel, that Daniel had a countenance about him, that when people looked at him, they saw something different about his appearance that was so different than all the rest in the world. 
God's people with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, we should have a similar countenance. When people see our face, they look and they say, there's something different about that person. There's, there's a countenance about them. There's a display about them. It's almost as if they display the glory of God in, in the way that they conduct themselves in their life. Just look at them. What is it about you? And it can be seen by those who are seeking God's face. His facial appearance became different. His countenance changed. Matthew 17 said his face shone like the sun. In Mark 9, 2, we're told that he was transfigured. The word transfigured became different or transfigured or changed literally is the word metamorphosis. There was a metamorphosis, a complete change of form and appearance. You know, if you've ever seen a caterpillar turn into a butterfly, the word is used of that process that takes place. It's a metamorphosis. It's a complete change. And I believe that God created caterpillars and butterflies for the purpose of revealing many spiritual truths. So often in life we look at the world around us and we say, oh, isn't that kind of like this? Well, don't you understand? God created that for the purpose of understanding this. God created sheep so that we would understand that we are like sheep and we have gone astray and that we need a shepherd. It's not that he went, oh, you know what, maybe, why don't I use sheep as an illustration? It's like, no, I'll create it first and illustrate it later. See, everything that God does has purpose and there's reason and there's order and there's not confusion. His countenance became that of another kind. Literally, the word means he became that of another kind. And in this moment, we see Jesus as he existed before taking on the appearance of a man. We see him in his pre-incarnate glory. We also catch a glimpse of what man could have been when, man, when, when God created man in his image. We're told that in his image, he created man. And before Adam sinned, it was a picture of all that man could be. But sin distorted that image of God. And it took away the glory of God that was revealed in his creation. But in this moment in time, not only do we see the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ revealed once again, but we also see, as we'll see in the future, His glory is returned. But not only His glory, but we get a picture of what we shall be like as well. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we see a picture of what it is that's taken place before the three and also before our very eyes through the words of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, speaking of the resurrected body that God's people have to look forward to, he writes, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living son, and the last Adam became a living or life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then comes the spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. And as is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 1 Thessalonians 4 also relays the same information. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this, perishable, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. I'll, and you'll notice that Paul is saying, hey, listen, you know what? Now we're in perishable bodies. They break down. They fall apart. They're disease riddled. And each day that we get older, every one of us, we realize how true that is and that this is perishable. But one day we'll put on the imperishable. And he says, how does that take place? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Him, repentance of sin and faith and trust in Him and God's purpose for us and His, and His plan for us that Jesus would die on the cross and be raised again. And those who would receive Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says we're born again in a moment in time. And that one day we can look forward to a body that is imperishable. And we're getting a glimpse of it in Luke chapter 9 of what we can see and what we'll look forward to. In Philippians 3, Paul would go on and write a similar note to his readers at that time as he struggled with the day of his departure, as he struggled with being, you know, to, of being in the presence of God. And he, and he reminded them and he reminds us that in Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. One day where He is, we shall be. And He will change these perishable bodies to the imperishable. In a moment in time, at the trumpet of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first, or we who are alive will be caught up with Him in the air. And we shall be with him always. And he says, comfort one another in these words. And, and, and as we go back to Luke, we notice that not only does his countenance change, but his clothing has changed. We're told his clothing became white and gleaming. It was quite a spectacle. Jesus was framed by a thousand summer stars. His clothing began to glow and were as bright as a flashing light. The word bright or leucos means white and it's a grand apocalyptic color, the color representative of what's beyond. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Revelation the, uh, chapter 1, we see this of the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory revealed to us once again in, first, in Revelation, the first chapter. In verse 12, it says, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstand was one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a, gir a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were like wool, white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which we know is the word of God. And his voice was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. We don't have to imagine. 
we don't have to imagine. When we see him, as John saw him in his corruptible uh, flesh, his mortal flesh, his perishable flesh, his eyes could not behold what he saw. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God says, you know what, you can't look at my glory for no man can ever see me for he will surely die. We're not in a position to see the glory of God. And yet Moses cried out, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God shielded him of his entire glory. And he let him catch just a glimpse of his back. Because if he had saw him in his essence, he would die. Because in this perishable body, we cannot behold the true glory of God. But one day, as he is, we shall be. And we will be in his presence for all of eternity. And we shall see him as he is. See, Jesus saw his own glory illuminating the faces of his awestruck disciples. If you've ever taken a small child to Disneyland and, and, and stood in the street as you looked up at the castle and the fireworks were going on in the background and you saw their eyes wide open like just dinner plates and you can see the reflection of the fireworks in their eyes, I've got to believe that as Jesus looked at Peter, James, and John, he saw his glory reflected in their eyes that were wide open like just dinner plates going, ha, 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 man. What a sight that is. And, you know, this moment was a, a glance back to his pre-human glory and it was a look forward to his future glory. You know, Peter, James, and John were meant to held, hold on to this vision. It was like Paul's glimpse of heaven that God gave him in 2 Corinthians 12 through all the difficult times that he would go through. They were meant to hold on to this vision during the difficult days that were to come. It was to be their solace. It was to be their rock. It was to be their hiding place. And it was to be their reason to continue to hope in the darkness that would come. You know, the crucifixion would eclipse their vision momentarily as we know that every one of them deserted him in the garden. They all ran away. And they all hid in fear for their lives after the crucifixion. And in that moment of darkness, this glory was eclipsed just momentarily, but not permanently. And the reason we know it wasn't permanent, because after the resurrection and years later, John, for example, would write, We have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten of Son of God, full of grace and full of truth. We beheld his glory. We saw his glory. He would read, we were eyewitnesses to his glory. We saw him in his essence. You know, as I continue to ride what I'm calling now the cancer coaster, it's, uh, it's such a glimpse of future glory that gives me hope. You know, I hang on to God's every promise, for he is not only my hope, but he is our hope. He is our rock and he is our fortress. He is our hope in those times where we struggle. And I'm not unique or alone in struggle. We know that. But as we take a look at this picture that God has given us, just this glimpse, just this, you know, he just kind of peels the, the, the eternal curtain back just enough that we can peek through and see what he has for us and how exciting that is, how exciting it is. But the devil doesn't want us to focus on God's promises. He doesn't want us to focus on the Word of God. He wants us to focus on our own troubles, our own difficulties. He wants to call into question the love of God in our life. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer and a liar, and he always will be. And so when we struggle with those moments where we're, we're gripped by fear or apprehension, 
we're gripped by the unknown, at least we think it's unknown, we go back to God's word and he opens again and he reveals to us his promises and we have peace with God that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We begin to live out the promises of God even here and now. When we lose a loved one, we don't lose a loved one because we know that absent from the body, present with the Lord are those who have repented of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. Having received Him as Lord and Savior and been born again, we recognize and understand that when a person goes from this life to the next, we know what to expect. We know our confidence, as Paul said, I am confident of this very thing. That though one is now absent from his earthly body, he is present with the Lord because he trusted in the promises of God. And we can take comfort in that. See, the question I have today for you is, how about you? Are you struggling? Are you confused? Are you fearful with this moment in time? Go to him and see this glimpse of his glory and see what lie ahead. And you will have no fear. For he is with us. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because, God, you're with us. What do we have to fear? And so Jesus stood radiating light. Luke tells us also that he discussed his goal. And we learn two things about this conversation that takes place in verses 30 and 31. It says, and behold, and I love the world, behold, take a good hard look. Look at this. Behold, Two men were with him. It says, behold, two men were talking with him, having conversation, discussing, discussion with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which was about to, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And, 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 and from this, what great comfort that we get. Moses and Elijah, we're told, Moses died, God buried his body. Elijah was taken up into heaven translated, taken from this earth into heaven in, a, in a, 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 a fiery chariot. And we look at this, and there's Moses and Elijah. Moses' body was buried, but Moses still was alive. He was more alive now than he had ever been here on earth. And he was conversing and discussing and talking with Jesus, and they were talking about his, his impending departure. But what's interesting is, you know, why Moses and Elijah? You know, why not David and Daniel or Isaiah and Jeremiah? You know, Moses and Elijah, both of these men had previously conversed with God on Mount Sinai. They both had seen God's glory. Moses, as I mentioned in Exodus 33, you know, he begged to see God's glory. And in fact, after he had seen God's glory, he had spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence and the glory of God. When he came back down off the mountain, his face was shining like Chernobyl. I mean, he was, his whole face was lit up. And they, you talk about countenance change. It was like, whoa, his face was lit up. They saw him coming down and all the people were afraid to even be in the presence of Moses who merely reflected the glory of God, how much more so to be in God's actual glory. But they, you know, he saw his glory. Both had famous departures from earth. As I mentioned, Moses died, but you know what? God buried his body. Elijah didn't die, and God took him to heaven. And what a great picture that we have. Moses representing the law of God, and Elijah the prophets. 
the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, all of God's word were represented in Moses and Elijah. And not only did Moses represent those who would die in Christ and then be with the in the presence of the Lord, Elijah represents all those who what? Will be taken at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And with surgery looming in the morning, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, there are just times you pray for the Lord's return that just are more real than at other times. And you know what? It wouldn't disappoint me in a second. But Moses was dead. He was buried by God, and yet he still lives. Elijah was taken up into heaven, and we who are alive at his coming will be caught up in the air. The Latin word rapture is found there. He represents all of the law and the prophets. And in fact, I believe as we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 3, that Moses and Elijah will be God's two witnesses who preach the gospel for that 1260-day period of time, the second half of the Great Tribulation. But as we look at this, we see the persons who were involved were Moses and Elijah, and they were recognized. But also the purpose was intended, and that was what? We get, his, we get the word, his departure at Jerusalem. And I love this word, departure. It is the same word that we get the word, exodus. He was talking to them about his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. We know from the book of Acts chapter 7, as Stephen was stoned, he looked into heaven and saw Jesus sitting at their standing at the right hand of the Son of God, the right hand of God, the Son of God standing in all of his glory. The ultimate exodus or grand exit is Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. If you recall from the book of Acts, they stood staring and they were like, whoa. And the angel said, "Why, men, men of Galilee, why do you stand staring into heavens? This same Jesus, just as he left, he shall return. But what a great departure. What a great exodus. What a great exit from this life. You know, as the cancer co- coaster has made me more aware of the possibility of an imminent departure, um, though we all will make such an exit, there are certain moments in life when it becomes much more real. It's put on the front burner, not the back burner. I realize, you realize, everybody here realizes one day you're going to die, I'm going to die. We all understand that. But there are certain times where it's like way, 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 way back in the back of our minds and then God has a way of thrusting it to the forefront. And we begin to realize the brevity of life. We begin to realize we need to redeem the time wisely for the days are short and few. We, need, and we begin to realize that we're like, we're like vapor that's breathed into a mirror and it's there for a moment and it's gone. And, and, and there's a certain sense of urgency that then comes with, you know what, Lord, there's, there's much more that I want to do for your kingdom and for your purposes. And, 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 you know, and I need to get busy. And I thought I was you know, busy before. I, I don't even have a sense of what it means when you start to look at, okay, the clock's ticking. What should we be doing for for your purposes. And I hope that through this, and I hope through this affliction in my life, every one of you get a sense of urgency that we need to get busy preaching the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, reaching the world with the word, because there are people all around us that we don't know that today may be their appointed time, and we need to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to have that sense of urgency, people. And this will help us to do that. It becomes more real. It becomes more, you know, I don't know God's immediate plan for my life or for yours. But from this passage, I get some encouragement that I'd like to share with you. As you do a word study of the word departure or to depart, it leads to these truths from God's word. Jesus, whose courage in the face of death is a model for each one of us, refer to his death as a departure or an exodus. He was talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. 
And Exodus is rich in Old Testament history, and it gives us details regarding the exit of God's children, the nation of Israel from Egypt. And the point we shall not miss is this. Just as Moses led his people out of slavery, so now Jesus Christ passed through his own sea, leading you and I who have trusted him out of the slavery of sin. And just as he led them to safe ground, we can follow Jesus who leads us to safe ground. There was nothing to be fearful about the journey. All they had to do was follow Moses, a trusted leader. And as they walked through the parted sea, they just had to continue to follow him and be obedient to him. And just as Jesus now leads us, we just keep our eyes. The Hebrew writer says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame, you know, endured the cross. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to keep our eyes on him. We never should be fearful about our final exodus or departure for we're following our leader who has gone on ahead and when the curtain parts we'll find that not only him on the other side but discover that he was the one who led us toward the curtain in the first place we keep our eyes on jesus just before his death christ told the disciples he was going where they could not come and peter who wanted to follow jesus everywhere wanted to follow him And Jesus' response at that time was, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Not now, but there's a day coming where you will follow me. Now that he has died and has been raised to heaven, we shall follow him. What gives us courage is the knowledge that he goes, you know, he doesn't ask us to go where he himself has not already gone. What gives us courage is to know that he has made a successful exit and he will make our exit successful as well. What gives us courage is that the word of God clearly reveals to us what we can expect and we don't have to imagine any of it because it is clearly revealed for us to understand. A little girl was asked whether she feared walking through a cemetery and she replied, I'm not afraid for my home is on the other side. And I love that picture because why should I be afraid? Because I know when I get to the other side, I'll find safety in my home. Paul also speaks of death as a sailing of a ship. If you recall in Philippians, he wrote, By I am hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart, there's our word, and to be with Christ, for that is much better. The word depart was used for the loosing of an anchor. A.T. Robertson translated to weigh anchor and put out to sea. Thanks to Christ, Paul was ready to embark on this special journey that would take him to his heavenly destination. Christ had already successfully navigated to the other side and was waiting with a host of Paul's friends who were there as well. And of course, Paul had friends on this side of the eternal curtain because he said, you know, I'm hard pressed. You know, I can't wait to depart to be with Christ. Yet I want to remain here for your sake. I've got stuff to do. And I can relate more so to that conflict at this time in my life than at any other time before. Because, you know, I can't wait to see my Savior. But at the same time, for the sake of those that God has here, and not just in our church, but those I haven't met yet and those God will bring into our path to share the gospel with for their sake. You know, like I said last week, I just don't feel I'm worthy to be called back from this assignment. 
And I don't say that jokingly, but at the same time, I recognize what a wonderful day that's going to be. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more MRIs, no more CT scans, no more scalpels, no more anesthesia, no more nothing except Jesus. And how good can that be? That's awesome. But at the same time, we're kind of pressed. We're we're, we're caught between two things. And yet at the same time, he was saying later, he would say years later, and and I'm sure that God gave him a sense of this because inspired by the Spirit of God, he wrote these words to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It's time to set sail to the eternal city. It's time to go. My work is done. I don't sense my work is done, but I don't know what God's will is, and and I I trust him. I haven't got that sense that Paul had that, you know what, it's time. But I don't know. And we trust him, and we trust his will. But in the meantime, we know that, you know what, to be in his presence is the greatest. To be here working in his service is a good thing, too. And you know what, God's people, we can't go wrong. We can't go wrong either place. So the question is this, you know, how can we be certain that what I'm sharing with you is true? Turn with me to 2 Peter. As Peter reflects back on this glorious day on the mountain. And I want you to see something that is so critical and important to each one of us to apply in our lives today, here and now. In 2 Peter chapter 1. We read the words that are here, starting with verse 16. And he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying, listen. You can trust us when we tell you this. We were there, we saw this, and we also heard the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We saw that, all of it. But you know what? Don't take our word for it because we're merely men. What we have is the written word of God. We've got God's word. And we go to God's word and we recognize that, you know what, God's word is the final authority of every situation in life. Why is that so important? Because the enemy is out there deluding and deceiving people who are seeking answers and they're getting told a bunch of lies and nonsense. I had a meeting this past week with a person in the medical profession and he said, you know, when I was getting my eyes tested, and he said, oh, you know, how's your eyesight? Well, you know, I wouldn't be here if it was, you know, great, but, you know, uh, you know, and then he said, well, how long have you noticed this? Blah, blah, blah. What's your general health? Well, you know, in, in July I was diagnosed with cancer and he stopped and looked at me and said, oh, you need to go to this website. I said, what is that? He goes, well, you need to go to St. Jude website. Well, why? Because St. Jude answers prayer. 
St. Jude is the patron saint, and here's a good one, he's the patron saint of lost causes. And then after he said it, I kind of went, I looked at him, and he said, whoa, 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 not that yours is. But, but I bring this up because I said, well, well, you know, and I'm praying, Lord, you know what, where, where are we going to go with this conversation? And I'm having the, you know, he's doing the exam. And, and I said, I said how do you know that he answers prayer? And he said, well, I'll tell you how. I said, my daughter went to a psychic. And the psychic, no, listen, and the psychic told my daughter to tell me that my dad, who had died three years ago, was okay. And that St. Jude answered your prayers. And my heart sank, and my heart was broke. But I, I, I prayed, God, you know, give me wisdom, give me sensitivity, give me gentleness, help me to, to have a conversation with this man so that we can talk about spiritual truth. And in the midst of the exam, I, I looked, I said, Doc, can I ask you a question? He said, well, sure. I said, in our conversation we are having, how do you know that that message came from God and not from the devil? How do you know that it's truth and not a lie? He said, well, what would be the end result? What would be the reason that it would be a lie? I said, well, the reason of a lie is always to deceive somebody into believing that the lie is truth. And we got into a great conversation for about an hour about what it was that he said he believed. And we got into, do you believe the Bible? Well, I, you know, the Bible is just written by men. See, and that's where all the trouble starts. I said, well, how do you know that the devil exists? Oh, because the Bible reveals it. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, and it was one question after another. How do you know this is true? How do you know that is true? And I said, Doc, everything that you ask me, I will tell you I believe is true because God's word reveals it to us. And I believe and trust that this is the eternal written word of God. As Peter writes... We have this word, the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. And know this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Everything that you and I believe has to rest upon the word of God. Even Jesus said to the man who was in Hades, who said in Sheol, let me go back and warn my family. He said that even if someone from the dead goes back to warn his family that this place really exists, they will not believe you because they had the law and the prophets, the very word of God, and they didn't believe God's word. Why would they believe yours? For an hour and a half, I sat in that chair and we discussed everything and anything that could come up. Linda sat out in the waiting room going, man, this is a, is there an MRI machine back there? <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 and I'm praying that God would use that seed and that would soften that man's heart because you can see how confused the world is who seeks and searches for what they want to hear more than anything that man wanted to hear that his dead father was okay. And you know what? We can know with clarity and certainty that those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, believing on His death on the cross and His resurrection, we can know for certainty that we will be okay because God's Word tells us so. 
And at the end of an hour and a half, you know what he said? Don't forget to check out the website. And my heart is breaking even as I think of it. But we'll pray for him. And we'll continue that God would give us opportunities to share. Because you know what? It's God's word that sets us free from the deception of the enemy. The very word of God. Lastly, from Luke 9, 32 through 36, we'll put this all together. Going back to the gospel of Luke. It says, And now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but then when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with them. And it came about as they were parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. The response of Peter was, Hey, it's good for us to be here. And you know, and I like the understatement of that. You know, I'm thinking that's a pretty good day. You know, how was your day? Well, I saw the Lord transfigured. I saw him in his glory and, uh, you know, how's your day? Well, that, you win. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, that's a pretty good day right there. He says, it's good to be here. But, but, it, but even yet, Peter didn't understand. And I want you to, to see that because what he said was, let me make a tabernacle or feast or booth for you because Peter still had in his mind that Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth without having to suffer, without having to die, without going to the cross, without the resurrection. And, and that was the predetermined plan of God by the foreknowledge of God. That is what God had always planned to reconcile you and me who have fallen through Adam's sin on our own to come back into a relationship with him. He said, let us make these booths. Well, Zechariah talked about the day when the kingdom of God is established. It's going to be a great day of great joy. And he said, let me me make these booths or these tents, one for Moses and Elijah and the other for Jesus. And then notice, and I love God's word. He just says, you know what? He didn't know what he was saying. And, And a lot of times, isn't that the truth of all of us? We just don't know what we're saying. We think we know. We don't know. The only thing I know that I say that has any truth at all and is eternal is when I just share what God's Word says. And even then, it's like, you know, that's God and not me. I mean, we struggle with knowing, you know, what do I say? What do I say? What do I do? What do I, you know what? Just share God's Word. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, you know, the, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, you know what? Hey, the, the church of Thessalonica, he said, hey, you know what? Brethren, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have departed, those who have died. You know, those who are dead in Christ shall, shall rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up. And he goes on and says, you know what? And comfort one another with these words. What words? With God's words. I love getting cards, and, and, and I appreciate all your cards and your notes. And, you know, and the ones that give me the most comfort are the ones that keep me focused in the Word of God. I'm praying for you, and, and God reminded me of this passage. I'm praying for you, and, and, and I thought of this verse. Or this card, you know, I read, and it reminded me of, you know what, fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, Peter's response was he still didn't realize what he was doing. He wanted God's kingdom established now. He didn't want the suffering. He didn't want the cross. He didn't want the resurrection. He didn't want the ascension. He didn't want his own personal self-denial and picking up his cross and following him. He wanted it easy. And don't we all? But that is not the word of God. The second thing is, notice the reaction of the disciples. We're told that, you know what? And while he was saying this, a cloud formed began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. You know what? And in our depravity and our, uh, our sinful nature, you know what? We should be fearful to be in the holy presence of a righteous God. 
We've got an attitude in our culture that is flippant, that what troubles me about what, we're, what was going on here as far as worship was concerned. That's why we decided to do whatever you want to call it, the lockout process, whatever it is. You know, I'm sorry if some are offended, but I, frankly, I really don't care, and I'll tell you why. Because we have developed in our culture a mindset that, you know what, that God has somehow become the big dodger in the sky or the man upstairs or my buddy or whatever these these flippant sayings that we come up with. And you know what? And he is God Almighty, a holy and righteous and perfect God. And when we enter into his sanctuary, when we enter into his presence, our heart must be right. Our attitude must be right. We had someone that was locked out. And you know what? And, And the guy looked at his wife and said, come on, we're out of here. And I said, you know what, it's probably good that they left because with a heart and attitude like that, you can't come in and worship our Creator. You know, and and we need to recognize and understand when we're in His presence, they were afraid. And I recognize that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need, but it's not because of our own goodness or righteousness or anything of that, because we have none. It is only because Jesus died for our sins, He rose again, He ascended into heaven, and because He has led the way, we have access to the throne room of God through Him, our great advocate. It's all about Him and not about us. They were afraid. We need to be reverent. We need to have an attitude of reverence and appreciation for who God is. We need to get back to that. Our culture has lost it because we have dummied down God and we need to lift Him up to His rightful place. And finally, notice the revelation from heaven. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And I can't think of a better place to end than on that note. For anyone who is confused about who Jesus is, once again, Luke records with clarity his identity. This is my son, my only begotten son, my chosen one, my anointed one. He is my savior for you. And when he said, listen to him, it was a prophetic fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 that talks about the day Messiah would come. And when he does come, you listen to him. And the word means you obey him. You listen and obey. What has Jesus said to you and I? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and I will give him something to drink. I will give him eternal waters, eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. Come to me and I will meet all of your needs. The greatest of which is forgiveness and reconciliation with your creator. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Why was it wrong to make three booths for Elijah and Moses and Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because Moses and Elijah are not on the same level as Jesus. And they were gone. 
And everything else was gone. And the focal point, as always, is Jesus. He is God's focal point of all human history. Jesus Christ is God's focal point of the entire Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it focuses on Jesus. You and I need to lift Him up before men. They saw a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And it's just a touch, a taste of what you and I, who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ for our forgiveness, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, have received Him as our Savior. You and I who are born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, you and I have those promises to look forward to. For I am confident of this very thing, that when I'm absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord. But until then, for your sake, I hope to remain, but God's will be done. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And your word is so clear to those whose eyes have been opened, whose ears can hear the voice of your spirit. God, I pray for any who are hearing these words that are not certain of their final destination. That they will turn from sin and recognize that they're sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous and we're all guilty before God. The wages of sin is death. The reason that we die, the reason we fall apart, the reason these bodies decay is because what you say about us is true. I pray that those who recognize and understand that will turn to you for forgiveness that they will go to the cross, kneeling at the base of the cross and trusting in Jesus' death on their behalf. They go to the empty tomb and see that He has risen just as He has said. They trust in His death and His resurrection. And His ascension into heaven, opening the pathway, the floodgates for all who trust in Him. You have led the way, even as you said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so it is. God, we thank you and we praise you and we just pray and I pray personally that we would all have a sense of urgency to reach this world with the word of God. The greatest news that man can ever hear that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we pray these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.